Hey, it's Anna. We are rerunning an episode today about race and friendship. This episode first came out in January 2020, before the murder of George Floyd and the racial justice protests that followed. For many of you, that summer changed things, including your closest friendships. That's also the case for many of the people in this episode. So be sure to listen next week when we'll have some updates from them. Often throughout our friendship, I've had the experience of the sense that you're on really solid footing in the relationship. There's a lot of trust and love there, which there is. But then, you know, your white friend can just make one comment and it feels like a trap door has opened up from underneath me. And, you know, I'm thrust back into the realities of living in a racist America. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Friendship is our only social relationship that is purely voluntary. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. It is only by mutual agreement. And need to talk about more. And someone can just walk away at any time. I'm Anna Sale. Chrisana White was one of the people who wrote in when I asked for your stories about when race became a flashpoint in a friendship. Sarah and I, we've been talking about our friendship in terms of race. And I think it really started after I had my bachelorette and I didn't invite her. Chrisana's Black, and everyone she did invite to her bachelorette party is also Black. She wasn't sure if Sarah, her close friend and coworker, would fit in. She's the only white woman. She's a little older than us. Um, I don't want people to have to filter, like, feel like they have to filter themselves because she's here. Um... And I was like, it just may be easier to not invite her. Do you remember feeling like you needed to explain why she wasn't invited? I did. And what did you say? I think it was like, okay, well, we should have a conversation about this. Like, she made a joke, and she said that I segregate my friends. And I I think for me, like, I think I became a little defensive. I said, well, I haven't met any of your white friends either. And so (laughs) I've been thinking about it for a long time, for months now. Race has always played a part in my friendships. I'm black. He's white. My friend didn't seem to understand the privilege that he had. I thought I was on steady ground with this friend, and I was not. When you bring up the word white or black, there is like this visual flinch. It comes up once, and then it's just avoided. When we asked you to send in your stories about race and friendship, we heard that race can be really hard to talk about directly, particularly in your friendships that cross racial lines. And many of you reflected on how that's affected who your friends are. I have very few friends that are outside of my, of of blackness, I should say. I have a lot of friends that are Hispanic. I was really struck in the picture of how white we all are, or the fact that All my friends are white. I mean, I don't want to not be friends, but it seems like our futures are going to pull us apart. I would love to change that. I just don't know how. You told us different things, depending on your race. We heard some stories about race complicating friendships between people of color. But overwhelmingly, people of color shared stories about feeling hurt by white friends. There's not one other person of color at the wedding. I mean, there's not even a a pepper shaker on the table. I'm just like, like, what? It's interesting to be occasionally sucker punched in ways like that. I just couldn't believe that this kid 
who I grew up with and, you know, I felt super close with, just really revealed himself. And white people told us about feeling ill-equipped to talk about race. We heard about a lot of avoidance and regret. In the moment, I completely marginalized her. And I did not have the courage to apologize to her. As a white person, I'm just so afraid of offending. Oh, this is uncomfortable. I got incredibly defensive. Um, felt like he was calling me a racist and got really upset about it. And frankly, I've been thinking about it for the past almost 40 years. A lot of people asked to change their names when they shared these stories. We'll note when we're using pseudonyms. And we're exploring all kinds of friendships. Because friendship is a spectrum. There are your closest, most intimate friends. There are people you'll grab a drink with occasionally. And then there are the people you meet at work and get friendly with. So we're not super close, but I would say associated in the working space. Antoinette is a Black woman in her 30s. She wrote into us about an interaction she had with a white woman from work who falls somewhere on that spectrum between colleague and friend. I've come to, like, a, a couple of her private events. Maybe it's a birthday party or been invited to, like, her son's birthday party or things like that that would fall outside of work. Kid's birthday, that's pretty intimate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This colleague texted Antoinette on a Sunday that she'd need to cancel their in-person meeting for the next day and suggested they make it a phone call instead. While Antoinette was texting back, she was also dealing with a leaky ceiling in her house and taking care of her daughter. So I really didn't think about the response that I gave her. That was like, let's just cancel. Thanks for letting me know. Um, and so while I'm trying to handle like the leaky ceiling situation, um, my phone starts ringing. And I miss the first, I think couple of phone calls and on the last one I pick up and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And she wants to talk about the fact that she didn't like the tone that I sent the text message in telling her that we should cancel the meeting. What precisely did she say when you picked up the phone? Um, she was like, hey, I just want to touch base because are we okay? That's what she said. Are we okay? Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, we're, we're fine. And she's like, well, I got your text message back and it said that you just don't want to meet at all. And then she expressed how kind of my short response made her feel. Uh-huh. Um, I said, hey, my feelings leaking. I have maintenance people coming in and out. I'm trying to wrangle that situation. And it, it kind of, it, it didn't feel like she heard me. Ultimately, I wound up apologizing for my short response to her. And I'm curious, why when we asked about stories about race and friendship, did you think of this interaction? I thought about this interaction because I think she's an, she's a woman, a white woman, who's very aware of the issues happening in society around people of color and interrace relations. And these are conversations we have a lot. But I think for me, it's kind of like when the rubber hits the road sometimes in these situations, um, the hierarchy of feelings come out. Tell me more about the hierarchy of feelings. That's a really useful concept, I think. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but I think it's, it, it's true that there is a hierarchy of who gets to feel what and when. And I, I don't think that my, my feelings are valued or acknowledged in the same level in which a white woman's feelings are acknowledged or valued. And because of that, it kind of makes the friendship 
kind of superficial in a way. You asked if we were close friends, and I don't think we are. And the reason why I don't think that we are is because I can't say to her, hey, when you called me and my ceiling was leaking and the maintenance people were coming in and out and I was wrangling my child and trying to clean up the floor, that really sucked for me. I can't say that. What do you think would happen if you did say, you know what, I've, I know we had this conversation some time ago, but like, I just want to let you know I've thought about this. This is how it made me feel, and I need you to know that. What do you think would happen? It's funny you say that. I reached out to her yesterday over email because I've been kind of distant since the situation happened, um, and I asked her to talk about it. Have you heard back? Yeah. Where is she supposed to meet next week to talk about the situation and what happened? I want to tell her how I felt in that moment. And I want to tell her how I felt obligated to apologize and make it smoother. Do you think he'll talk about race, how you interpreted it in part as, as having a particular dynamic because she's a white woman and you're a black woman? I'm not, I don't plan on leading with that, but I hope that we can get to that point in the conversation. I, I feel like I'm going to have to play it by, by ear kind of. Uh-huh. Like, I don't want to push it all the way there. Um, and that seems even weird to say as I'm saying it. Like, I don't want to push it all the way there. Like, I'm still I'm still being very measured because I don't want her perception of me to be bad. And it bothers me when I'm talking about it because I'm leading with someone else's feelings and emotions before my own. And that's hard. Of course, racial dynamics are also present in friendships when you're the same race. And some of you told us getting close to someone who shares your racial background has been revelatory. My name is Matt. I am 33 years old, and I'm an adopted South Korean American. Matt sent in this voice memo from North Carolina. He grew up in upstate New York, surrounded by mostly white people, including his parents. He says he didn't feel any connection to his Korean heritage at all. I've often felt like an imposter. Uh, Sometimes it kind of feels like describing my Halloween costume to someone because, for example, a person dressed as a character from Game of Thrones isn't actually that character, obviously. They just look like one. And that's how I feel about being ethnically Korean. But when Matt started a new job at a newspaper, he quickly became friends with a colleague who we're calling Jay, who's also Korean-American. They bonded over being the only two Asian-American people at their workplace and occasionally being mistaken for each other. But their experiences growing up were totally different. You know, his mom's Korean, um, so he grew up with a lot of cultural references that I can't relate to. Um, And, you know, like I said in my message, like sometimes I just kind of feel like a fraud because I, people, I think, expect me to have some kind of connection to me being Asian or Korean, um, but I have none of that. So when you're talking to Jay about what his experience has been as a Korean-American, what what does it feel like? Well, I guess um, in part, I'm almost envious, you know, because I I want to be a more complex person who has ties to a different culture, you know? Um, Yeah, I guess I wish I could be a little bit more of what Jay is as who he is, his place in in America as a, you know, um, Korean-American. 
does it feel like your friendship with Jay is is important with with what you're thinking about and in your identity right now? Yeah, I mean, he seems so comfortable um, in his in his skin. Um, I remember in middle school, a teacher passed out some kind of um, little survey or something asking us one of the questions was like, what would you change about yourself? And I remember writing down, I, I wish I was white. And so I just feel like from a young age, I've always struggled with feeling different and being different. And, you know, I, I never really, for a long time, I didn't, I never felt attractive, you know? And so I, I, I guess part of me envies um, Jay when he, you know, seeing that he is able to um, relate to um, Korean culture, um, Korean pop culture, Korean language. Um, it's almost like hearing about um, uh, a little bit about the person that I could have been had I not been adopted, you know? Um, and it gives me different ways to think about myself as an Asian person. One thing we know from the limited research that's been done about race and friendship here in the United States is that Asian, Hispanic, and multiracial people are more likely to have friendships with people who are not the same race as them. Black and white people's friend groups tend to be a lot more homogenous, particularly white people's. One study found that 91% of white people's social networks are made up of other white people. Like, I don't choose my friends because they're white but my friends happen to be white. It's easy to accidentally racially segregate. I really didn't know how to talk about race. Um, It just wasn't part of my family culture or my regional culture. When I think about the way that race is talked about in my upbringing in school, it it always felt like something in the past. This is a listener we're calling Kathleen. She's white, grew up in the Midwest, and when we talked, she was in her mid-20s. It felt very much like the civil rights era happened in the 60s, and we learned about that and wasn't that, you know, awful that people were so racist then, but it's different now. (laughs) Kathleen wrote into us about a friendship that she had starting in middle school with another white girl. They were close, but race never came up between them until the night that Barack Obama was elected president when they were 15. I was at home. I was staying up late by myself, watching all of the results for him. And I felt just overwhelmed with excitement mm-hmm. at this huge historic uh, event. And then I get a text from her and I expected her to be reacting like I was, but she told me that she was scared and she's upset and she was she was afraid that Obama's presidency would be bad for white people, which just totally took me off guard. Did you text back? Not immediately. I kind of like paused for a little bit and um, I responded to her and just told her to never talk about anything like that to me again. So you, you were wanting to signal this is not okay with me by also saying, let's not talk about this anymore. Yes, absolutely. It was, I didn't agree with her and I wanted her to know that, but I also didn't have the balls to confront her about that or to challenge her on that. I just kind of shut it down and I just didn't really want to 
dive into it or unpack it. I just wanted it to not happen (laughs) Mm -hmm. at the time. Kathleen says after that, she and her friend drifted apart, but they followed each other on social media. And several years ago, Kathleen saw a Facebook post from her pop up in her timeline. It was around the beginning of Black Lives Matter, and she posted an article about the protesters, and she specifically said, someone needs to put these animals in a cage. Wow. And that, yeah, it was just, it was so ugly and so blatant, and it was kind of like, like, I already knew that she had those feelings from the previous incident, but to just see such naked language like that, it was just, it was just, I don't know. And once again, I kind of took the cowardly way out and just unfriended her from social media. And that was the end of it for me. Why did you say, you said you took the cowardly way out? What would have been the non-cowardly way to go forward yeah well now um now I wish I would have confronted her about it I don't know if I could have changed her mind but at least let her know that what I thought was so wrong about what she was saying instead of just quietly clicking unfriend so among your, your white friends now, is race something you talk about? Yes. I feel like uh, this is just an observation I've had recently, but I find that among my white friends and family, we discuss race much more than I ever do with my friends who are people of color. I specifically notice that with a lot of my uh, female friends mm-hmm. who are very aware of their whiteness and are always very conscious of not taking up too much space, if that makes sense. Not take up too much space. There's the ways in which that sounds like you're making room for other people to step forward and take up space. There's also a way in which that sounds like um, shrinking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I've thought about this. In some of my friends' lives, I think that they have become uh, afraid of being perceived as ignorant or as racist or as um, privileged. And so they've kind of shrunk themselves in like a reaction to that. Like they just don't know how to to do both, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about like what what you're saying about um, the idea of being afraid you're going to say the wrong thing and then thinking about in 2008 when your response was like, this is not a good conversation. I don't want to have this conversation. It's a similar kind of um, uh, instinct to just tr- try to contain whatever could be explosive. Yeah. Yes, it is trying to not be as un. We don't want to be uncomfortable because there's probably no comfortable. There is no comfortable way to talk about something that has been so messy. And also, it's it's like it's kind of funny to think of like, oh, I'm so afraid of someone thinking I'm ignorant. Like that's the worst thing that could happen when I'm in a conversation about race. 
Mm -hmm. it's it's just I don't know it's embarrassing yeah (laughs) I guess yeah I wish I was better than that Coming up, more stories about when race has become a flashpoint in your friendships and how those moments of tension sometimes made race a lot easier to talk about with your friends. I, I wouldn't say that we're like, you know, laughing about it. Like we're not sort of constantly laughing about it. Like, oh, isn't it funny how like racism is the most charged and unacknowledged element of American life? Ha ha ha. But uh, I think we would say like, oh yeah, well that's because, you know, you're white and I'm not. And he's like, yeah, that is true. That is probably why that's happening. When we reached out to the listeners featured in this episode to hear how they're doing, their responses reinforced just how much had shifted since we first ran this episode in January 2020. It's wild to me because I feel like that conversation was like at the precipice of what we would then see unfold. I'm a lot less willing to sort of spend time with people who... Like, I don't want to be around. Even like three years ago, I would have been like, oh, I hope one of those messages wasn't weird or didn't say the wrong thing. And now I'm like, well, I'm sure there was something weird in there. <laughs> so she'll get back to me. <laughs> You'll hear these updates from listeners in next week's episode. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, 
just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. A listener named Mary Jane Hadley Evers sent in a voice memo from Indianapolis. She's a Black woman in her 50s, and she grew up in a small town about 20 miles away. As a little girl, she had two best friends on her street, Diane and Jane. So uh, it was a hot summer day one time, and I remember uh, we'd been playing for hours, and and Jane's dad had been working on his car, and he finally finished waxing it. And he said to Jane that it was, you know, well, it's time to go. So um, I'm looking at my friend Diane like, well, I, I guess we better go. They're getting ready to go somewhere. And she kind of stayed back and looked a little bit nervous at Jane. And, and, and Jane said, well, Diane was going to go with us. Um, and so she kind of nervously looked at me and said, um, in Mooresville, they don't, they don't let black people into their swimming pools. And so I, I mean, I, I didn't get it. I was nervous. I was confused. I just kind of got quiet and watched them load up into the convertible and take off to go to the swimming pool. Um, when I got home, I never told my parents about anything that had happened that day. Um, I don't know if I was too embarrassed or if I was just trying to spare their feelings. For some of you, flashpoints around race and friendships were some of your earliest encounters with racism. And those long-ago memories from childhood have not faded. Like for Ashley, a listener from Chicago, who was 27 when we talked. So um, I spent the majority of my life around races other than mine. Mm-hmm. So it was just something that was really normal and natural to me. It was something I, I never really thought of it until it was kind of slapped in my face where I'm like, wow, you know. The first time that happened, Ashley was nine years old. Ashley's black, and her closest friend was a Mexican-American girl. They rode the bus to school together every day. And then, out of the blue, Ashley says her friend just stopped talking to her. I try to sit next to her on the bus, and she won't look at me, she won't talk to me. And I'm like, what did I do? Kind of racking my brain, like, what did I do to make her so mad where she won't even look at me? Mm. Then finally, I was talking to one of my friends, and she was like, yeah, you didn't do anything wrong. The reason she can't talk to you anymore is because you're Black, and her family doesn't, her parents don't want her hanging out with Black kids. So that was when I was like, okay, well, I guess I have my answer. I've, you know, a bit of shock, and uh, who am I going to eat lunch with now, you know? There's something about the suddenness with which it happened. Like, do you think it it affected your ability to sort of, like, trust? Yeah, I mean, I we, you know, went from doing all these things together, and I thought we're best friends, and the fact that she could drop me so, I mean, in my mind, it felt so easily, just really stung, and... Yeah, it it hurt a lot that someone I thought was my best friend one day suddenly just wasn't the next. A listener we're calling James grew up in New Jersey. 
He was also one of the only black kids in his town. But for him, race came up in his friendships in a different way. The message he got from his white friends was that they liked him despite his race. There was a lot of, like, people basically saying in a coded way, like, hey, you're the exception. Like, you're not like other uh, black people because you're, you know, like, you're doing well in school and, like, you have a future and, like, you know, you're different. Did it register at all like a compliment? Was there part of you that was like, oh, they don't see me as different? Yeah, definitely, definitely. There was definitely some of that um, because, you know, I knew I knew the things that they were referencing. I knew the stereotypes that they were referencing. Um, but my thinking was always like, you know, you obviously don't know that many black people, but, you know, <laughs> at that age, I wasn't like, you know, you're just trying to do your best to sort of fit in and, I'm really bad with conflict as it is, so I would just try to, my thing would be like, let's try to find a way out of this, either by making people laugh or um, just sort of moving past it. James's closest friend growing up was a white guy we're calling Mike. After college, they decided to be roommates together in New York City. It wasn't long after the man who shot and killed Trayvon Martin was acquitted of murder. And like a lot of people we heard from, James said what was happening in the news was changing the way he understood racial dynamics in his friendships. That really hit me hard, and it, it made me sort of reevaluate a lot of the things that I took for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of that was also me just paying more attention to the people I was surrounding myself with and and just the the way I allowed people to treat me. How did that come up in your friendship with Mike? Well, he would always, you know, say certain things that were pretty thinly veiled racism. Um, but I guess I think the like big breaking point was, you know, the election time when, you know, we were sitting in um, our apartment and we started watching one of the Republican debates. Um, they started talking about the Middle East. And then Mike said, basically, we need to just, you know, like treat the Middle East like cancer and just like drop an atomic bomb on it. And that was, that was like, I, I had never been just more angry just like in my life than I was in that moment. Um, mm. And that led to like a screaming um, argument to the point where I actually left my apartment that night. That, that was sort of the breaking point for me when I realized like, this is not someone who you can continue making excuses for. I was just sort of done. James moved out of their apartment not long after that. And he says today, his friend group includes a lot more people of color and fewer white people. Yeah, my friend group now, somebody would say that the stuff that Mike would say, like, I'm not the only person who who has to say something. Hmm. I think the biggest thing is just I've just tried to surround myself with people who I feel like value me and, like, don't require me to sort of prove my worth to them. 
Hey Anna, my name is Ankenna. I am a 22-year-old listener from Toronto, Ontario. I am an Indian woman born and raised in Canada. And um, it definitely, when these microaggressions happen in friendships with white folks, it causes almost like a tectonic shift. I feel like that's what friendships are, that you're just these almost two tectonic plates that are perfectly aligned. Everything is level, everything is just unified. And then that one thing happens that just creates this huge crevice. Uh, and there's the split. And for me, um, I, even though that split when it happens is so painful, um, it's also a huge gift to me. And the reason why is because it shows me who true allies are and who aren't. For a listener we're calling a Jay, a tectonic shift in a friendship happened when he was in his early 20s. His longtime friend, who we're calling Sam, is white. Ajay is Indian American. And they were having a conversation about Ajay's older brother, who has a developmental disability. Somehow it had come up that when I had been pretty young, uh, maybe five or six, my parents had started to tell me and to remind me that when they had passed away, when they were dead, my brother's care would be part of my, would partially fall on me as a responsibility. And I mentioned this to, to Sam and he was really startled and, and I think um, maybe even a bit angry, angry on my behalf uh-huh. because he said that that was a, an expectation that was not fair to levy upon such a young child. That maybe that was the situation, but to start telling a, a sibling that at such a young age was too much. He was like being protective of, of small Ajay. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes, I think, and it was a really sharp moment because it made me really realize, oh, we are quite different. We have very different backgrounds. And, you know, to some degree, you'll never understand this. And how did you read his race being a part of his interpretation? Like, how did being a white guy um, inform his reaction, do you think? I think it was because the idea of um, family expectations and that really being a major part of my upbringing and something that was just on the table from a young age in many different ways, but certainly in this very stark one about my brother's care, that other families didn't necessarily have that. You know, maybe other parents didn't tell their kids we are in this together because we are immigrants and, and, you know, to some degree we have to rely upon the family unit. Mm -hmm. And this conversation was one of the moments when I realized that other families don't have that kind of dynamic. Did you try to say, like, no, 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 I'm not sure you're, you get it. Like, did you try to explain yeah, it to him? I would have said, you know, well, this is just the way it is. And can't you sort of see why they might have tried to do it? Um, and it's sort of trying to defend my parents from the sort of implicit criticism and also try to sort of say, we don't need to feel bad about the situation. Did you feel less close after that first conversation with Sam about your family? I think I felt, 
I think it did distance us a bit because I thought, well, maybe we, maybe this isn't something that we'll ever really be able to understand about each other, and maybe that means we're not really that similar and, and really can't be friends. That was the way I thought about it when I was in my 20s. Why did you stay friends? That's a very good question. I think it was um, a lot of work, um, but... Speaking for me, I think it's because he has seen me go through a lot of changes in my life and just grow into an adult, and there aren't that many people in that category. And I think that, you know, as you know, people grow together as friends and, you know, as, as family, and I think we both consider each other family at this point, having been friends for over 20 years, um, you sort of understand those differences and they don't seem distancing. It's okay to have that difference inside your friendship. Yes. Before you became close to Sarah at work, um, had you had many close white friends? Nope. <laughs> no. This is Chrisana again, the woman who decided not to invite her friend and colleague Sarah to her bachelorette weekend. It doesn't mean they're not close, though. I think it was last week. I was like, Sarah, re- like... We reached a, a new milestone in our friendship. Like, we were talking on the phone, and, like, I was falling asleep on the phone with her. And then the next morning, I was like, Sarah, I think I, felt, I was, like, falling asleep. And she was like, I'm glad you said that because I was getting nervous that I said something wrong. And she said, because you were just so agreeable. And normally you aren't. <laughs> and, like, I laughed so much because, like, I was definitely falling asleep. I don't know what she started talking about, but I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chrisana and Sarah first met back in 2014. They were both starting out as attorneys at a public defender's office in Brooklyn and ended up sharing an office. And I think when you share an office with someone, you get to know every part of them. Like you hear conversations, you, mm-hmm. you know, you get to meet their family. Like she's, I've met her partner. She's met my partner. She's come over to my house. Chrisana says Sarah is one of her best friends. So when she decided not to include Sarah and the group of friends invited to her bachelorette party, she tried to make it up in another way. My birthday was a couple of weeks before then, and I said, okay, so since those people are planning my bachelorette, paying all this money for my bachelorette, for my birthday, I'm not going to ask them to celebrate with me, but I'm going to celebrate with Sarah and my other friend, Betsy, who also happens to be white. Is Betsy also a work friend? Yes, from a former job, yes. Okay. So just to recap, white friends for your birthday, (laughs) black friends for your bachelorette. (laughs) Yes. Why did it feel like it was about race and not these are my work friends that I'm going to be with for my birthday and my party friends I'm going to be with for my bachelorette. What about it felt like a racial dimension to you? Well, I think it was because Sarah had said, like, she's like, oh, so you're segregating your friends. And so I think once, like, she planted that seed in my mind, I was like, ah, I can see how you say that or how it looks like that. Um, And did that feel bad when she said that? Not bad, but I was like, oh, this, you know, this is something to reflect on. Besides The Bachelorette, has there been a moment in your friendship with Sarah where she she said something that didn't sit right with you about race? Um, no, not that she said, but I, I, I think I will say that, like, I think there have been instances where she hasn't used her privilege in, in, in ways that I think that she could have or should have. 
But like, I just wish that like she would, that it didn't take me to go into the office and say something that she would speak up and like that she would say something that's like, this is wrong or like, we need to do things differently or like, what about the people of color who work here? Instead of like me having to go into the office and say that to the supervisor. I like I shouldn't be the one doing this all the time or at all. You told her that I I didn't tell her that. But I think like I, I thought about it and I was just like, I just wish that like there were times where she did stand up. But I, I think like knowing Sarah so well, it's because of like some of her insecurities and like her like it's just her personality, not because like she wouldn't do it or, or doesn't want to. So that's something you haven't talked about. Yeah. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Hi. Anna. Thank you for coming in. Oh, sort of my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. <laughs> this is a gift of friendship. <laughs> when Chrisana first wrote to us about her friendship with Sarah and the Bachelorette conundrum, Sarah was CC'd on the email. So we asked Sarah if she'd want to join Chrisana in the studio. Their back and forth about Chrisana's Bachelorette party had stuck with Sarah, too. I was like, wow, it's weird that you would choose to celebrate your birthday with us, but not invite us to your bachelorette. And then I said something that was like, I made a joke about her segregating her friendship, which I wasn't sure I was going to mention today. But now I have. I beat you to it. Chrisana already mentioned it. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> that, that's a comment that she noticed. Yeah, I yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it was a joke, although I was sort of like, Man, you really probably, it's like, it was the first time I thought, maybe you think I can't hang out with your friends. Like, there was no heart-falling moment. There was more of a realization that, oddly, we had both taken for granted that I was somehow separate. Um, and I feel I sort of understand it. What do you understand? Well, the way Chris has described it to me is that she didn't want them to feel censored. I wouldn't want anyone to feel censored by my presence. Um, and I can sort of respect and appreciate how that would be very real. I think I did what was what was easy or what felt easy to me at the time. But, like, I really hope that, like, it hasn't affected. And I, I don't feel like it has, but I, I really hope that that you, it hasn't affected our friendship in any way or, like, what you perceive to be, like, our closeness. So it's so it's interesting. In the moment, I did not, I think, experience it as a slight Maybe like a soft slight where I was like, "Oh, I realize this is different." Mm -hmm. I do think it would. It's. I do think it would have taken our friendship to a very like another like also wonderful place had had you invited me and had I gone. When you think about what that would bring out in you, or or a way that Chrisana would see you in a slightly different way if she saw you in that environment, what do you picture? Well, it, I mean, I don't know how often Chrisana sees me outside of our office, at least with people who are different from me. Um, I think it would be good for Krasana to know that I am capable of not being in on everything and still appreciating a community and sort of um, a, sort of being a part of a space and appreciating that space without being the center of that space. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think we're like out of opportunities. What's it like to sit and talk together in one room about this and have me ask you these questions? How do you all feel right now? I like it. Of course she does. She loves it. <laughs> <laughs> she loves it. Um, 
I mean, I feel good about it. The thing is, we've ta- the truth is, I feel like we've talked about so much of this in the fabric of our friendship. Mm-hmm. That's the only way I could have ever made a joke like that. Mm-hmm. Like, but we're such close friends that I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is weird. Chrisana, I want to ask you if, Sarah, Chrisana and I also talked about race and the workplace. And um, Chrisana, do you want to tell Sarah a little bit about what you said to me? Sure. Um, I said to Anna that, like, there were times where I felt like you could have spoken up a little more mm. or used your privilege, um, but did not. And so it felt it fell on me and, like, other people of color to do that work. First of all, I think I've learned a lot from our friendship about how to speak up, sort of bringing issues of race, like, to the front and getting them attention. Um, but I, I certainly, when I met you, was not in that place. Um, but I also do think, I can think of moments where I did put myself in, in, like, in the middle of a conversation that I definitely would not have otherwise. But I, I, but I also think it's fair to say I learned a lot of that from Krasana. And so I can appreciate that and acknowledge that. And still acknowledge that that means you're the one carrying the burden, right? That I had to learn from you. I could, I had to learn. Um, I, I didn't do it on my own. Because I, what I heard you saying, Chrisana, earlier is that there definitely were moments at work where knowing you had such a close friend who was a white woman in your office, um, that it was, it was maybe disappointing that it still felt like you had to, to have some of these fights, lead some of these fights on your own. Yeah, and I think, like, we'd be talking about it, and I think our values and, like, our feelings would be aligned. But I was the one who, like, took the steps to, like, address the issue. I mean, it makes sense. It certainly doesn't surprise me that, um, not in a way that excuses it, but just in a way that acknowledges my failings, that there are things I wouldn't have done or wouldn't know how to do or kind of wouldn't feel comfortable doing that you shouldn't have to do alone. Um, mm-hmm. Is there more you want to say, Sarah? I mean, it's very tough. It's the kind of conversation I wish we could have had in real time. Um, like that, I'm really sorry about that. And I know sorry doesn't, like, that's not how allyship works. But but I, as a friend, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... I'm I'm very grateful that in in spite of the ways sort of that are, happen in every friendship that are totally normal, we occasionally fail each other, some much mm-hmm. bigger and deeper than others. We keep, we come back to the table and, mm-hmm. and actually just, I mean, at this point, it's like one of the longest, richest adult <laughs> friendships that I have, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I, I foresee it lasting. So yeah. that's pretty awesome and exciting. Mm-hmm. Ugh, please don't put awesome and exciting in that episode, Hannah. Put it in. <laughs> exciting? But it, it's very, you could say it's beautiful. <laughs> That's Chrisana White and Sarah Lohr. Okay, take care. All, All right, right, bye. 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 We did it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can't believe it. Okay, we have a lot to talk about. How did I feel you? <laughs> I checked back in with Chrisana and Sarah, and you'll hear our conversation next week.
Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Afi Yellowduke and Katie Bishop in 2020. We worked with NPR's Code Switch podcast on this series. At the time, Shireen Marisol Miraji, Jess Kung, Leah Donella, and Jean Demby. They made their own excellent episode about race and friendship as part of our collaboration, and there's a link to it in our show notes. Our team today includes Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Afi Yellow Duke, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Lily Clark. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Priyanka Data in Berlin, Germany for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. You can join Priyanka and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.